Hi there, this is James Schrall of Subclass Act, and you're listening to Tale of the Manticore. The following podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Tale of the Manticore, Season 2. Like the creature from which it takes its name, Tale of the Manticore is a mashup, a crossbreeding between two different species of storytelling. Here, you will find the unpredictability of old-school RPG paper and dice games with the storycraft of a dark fantasy novel. No character is sacred, and no character will be spared if the dice decide their fate is at hand. According to lore, the tail of a manticore is barbed with cruel iron spikes. There will be much pain in the days ahead. Last time on Tale of the Manticore. In the previous chapter, we witnessed the assault on the safe house that goes not quite to plan. Right away, the PCs lose the element of surprise when a guard dog hears their approach. A furious combat between Cole and the animal almost results in the first official PC death of the season, but the big fighter makes it through with a single hit point between him and Oblivion. After Yellowfly defeats the safe house owner, he and his crew find out not one person living there on the lamb, but two. One is a small tremulous man who offers no resistance at all. The other is a vulgar woman of middle years who, when everyone is distracted, somehow manages to get hold of a dagger. She uses the blade to hold the small man hostage and makes her escape after stabbing him through the throat, or at least it seemed she did. Inexplicably, when the man is inspected, he is alive and well, completely unhurt. But the woman is gone. Chapter 4, Part 1, Day 1, Night. Party status, Yellowfly, 8 out of 8 hit points. Shawnee, 5 out of 5. Cole, 1 out of 8. Tamlin, 5 out of 5. It took a long time to calm him down. Over and over, he put his hands to his neck and took them away, as if expecting that, this time, they would be covered in blood. Didn't you see? Did you all see? I, I felt the blade go in. I, I... His speech became slurred and incomprehensible as he blubbered. They had all seen the blood. Even Cole had seen it and he was barely conscious. Tamlin had tended to his wound and stopped bleeding, but the big man was as pale as snow and still too weak to stand. It didn't take long before they accepted that the woman could not be followed. In all the commotion, she had disappeared into the night. By now it was dark out, and there were plenty of trees in every direction to conceal her. When Shawnee picked up her bow and headed for the door in pursuit, Yellowfly said, Let her go. She's gone. We've got what we came here for. This last phrase disturbed their remaining captive and caused him to tremble even harder. Sit, Yellowfly ordered. The man instantly obeyed and dropped to the floor. <laughs> Yellowfly squatted down across from him and scanned him with dark eyes. Without shifting his gaze, he addressed Tamlin behind him. How's our man doing, Tamlin? He'll live, came the measured reply. Good. Yellowfly now pointed at the stranger who swallowed hard. Who are you? 
How long have you been with the eyes? And who are you hiding from? Tell me everything and I promise you'll come to no harm. At least, not from us. The other man was short and slender. He wore a brown nightshirt from under which poked knobby pale knees. He pulled them up to his chest and averted yellow fly's gaze. He had hollow cheeks, a thin blade of a nose, and a short brown beard that came together in a point. His eyes flicked from person to person, then back to Yellowfly. I'm not... I'm not with them. I'm not one of them. Best not lie to us, warned Yellowfly. It's no lie. I... I needed help. I didn't know to whom to turn, and uh, my friend, he introduced me to some men. Some men? Yellowfly's eyes turned to Shawnee, and then back to the man who looked like he was trying not to cry. I, I, I never knew their names, never I never even saw them in, in the light. They made all the arrangements. I I paid them. They took care of things. They, they brought me here and told me to stay put and, until I heard from them again. You're from the city, said Yellowfly. It wasn't a question. The man nodded. When did you arrive here? Uh, uh, f- four, four days ago. I think it's time we had your name. It's... It's Phelan. Phelan Orla. Yellowfly looked at his companions in turn. Tamlin, get Cole ready to move. Shawnee, search the place. Take no more time than you need. We'll leave in on. He turned back to Phelan and cricked his neck to one side. Very well, Master Orla. While they get you ready, you and I will have a little chat. Hi, I'm Rob. And I'm Eamon. And you are listening to a trailer for our podcast, Monster Fuzz. Monster Fuzz is a podcast for fans of cryptozoology, the paranormal, aliens, folklore, and much more. Do tales of Bigfoot tickle your fancy? In 1992, I received a call from a Connecticut woman <laughs> who said that a black helicopter landed in her yard and a Bigfoot jumped out. <laughs> Messed up the yard, stole her clothes that were hanging on the line to dry, and then it quickly climbed back into the helicopter and took off. Or how's about some ghost stories? The 30-year-old counsellor from Nottingham says, My new ghost lover is really special. Wise, stable, and kind. Two seconds, are, two seconds, right, two seconds. What do you say now? My new ghost lover, implying yeah. that there was an old ghost lover. No, no, I think it's just like, it's my new lover, but it's a ghost, kind of, I think. Okay, okay. I don't think she has, like, multiple. Maybe the odd alien sighting. The interesting thing is that the three witness accounts slightly differ, but what they all agree on was that they heard the shrill whistle of the UFO's engine, which I believe you have an MP3 of. That was, that yeah. was it, actually. Got that from Landrum. She actually sent that to me posthumously. Yeah. Is, La- is Landrum posthumously? I was just about to ask, was she still alive? <laughs> but you've actually got your spirit box recently delivered from Amazon, haven't you? So you're you're doing a lot of uh, a lot of a lot of seances, a lot of sexy seances. If you said yes to any of those, then search Monster Fuzz in your favorite podcast player. We drop episodes twice per week. Come join the party. Dramatis Personae Cole Cole is a human fighter, level 1. He is 23 years old, with long dark hair, which he wears tied back with a leather cord. Cole stands at 6 foot 2 and weighs 190 pounds. He is a big man, tall and broad, though he is largely unaware of his considerable physical presence. 
Cole is a practical man, and what he lacks in education, he makes up for with keen instincts and common sense. He's good-humored, and people tend to warm quickly to his convivial nature and jovial disposition. But rarely do they truly know him, for he has good reason to keep his own counsel. Cole grew up near the town of Nepule. He was the second son, and through his childhood he always felt in the shadow of his older brother, Krell, who was ever keen to demonstrate his superiority. His parents were farm workers, and although the lord who owned their lands was generous, his family remained poor. So when that lord graciously offered for one of the sons to be educated alongside his own, it was only natural that Krell, as the eldest, was chosen. The years passed and Krell became more and more distant, preferring more well-to-do companions from Selmoral. On the rare occasions that Krell did visit the family, he mocked his younger sibling's rough manners and common accent. Cole was wounded by his brother's snobbery, but made little of the insults, so as not to show how deeply Krell's words had cut. When Cole was 18, Nepil's ruling families were rounded up by the inquisitors of the current king of Camertine, King Colfrey, or Colfrey the Terrible as he was lately called. In the end, the town's sheriff, mayor, and half a dozen councillors, ministers and even clerics, were put to the sword, replaced with men and women deemed more loyal to the crown. Although some of the residents with long memories privately raged against these perceived injustices, other prominent citizens of Nepule welcomed the bloody correction, eager to blow with a prevailing wind and secure their positions with the monarch. The common folk, however, suffered. Any word of opposition was dealt with harshly. There were public beatings, floggings, and imprisonments. Some outspoken people simply disappeared. Resentment festered, and soon there were rumblings of resistance and even rebellion. One morning, Cole was visiting the town center of Nepule. He'd been sent to buy a new harness for the plowman. The narrow streets, shaded by the outer city walls with their mossy old stones, were bustling as he made his way toward the saddlers. Passing through an open square, he heard a commotion where a small crowd had gathered. Cole pushed his way through the onlookers and saw three men taking turns beating a young man. The man's clothes were torn and his face bloodied. Two of the men, wearing the black and green livery of Silmoral's royal family, held his arms as a third, a civilian, punched him in the stomach. The man doubled over and dropped to the ground. His assailant began kicking him repeatedly, while the other two laughed and jeered. Cole was not a man who looked for trouble, but seeing such unrestrained violence upon a defenseless man stirred something inside him. He stepped forward as the civilian stopped kicking and spat a globule of phlegm at the now prone man. Hey! He called. The civilian turned around and Cole was shocked to see his brother, Krell. For a moment, there was a flicker of shame on his sibling's face, but it was quickly replaced with contempt. Go back to your potato patch and mind your own business, Krell sneered. Cole stepped deliberately forward. He was now close enough to touch his brother. Krell, stop this. Krell took a step back, looking to his comrades for support. The crowd, sensing danger, thinned and then completely evaporated as the two men in livery drew daggers. One slashed at him. Here's for you. Cole easily avoided the man's blade and struck him with his bare fist, sending the man sprawling. The other closed in, crouching low. Cole pivoted and grabbed the man's wrist, twisting it sharply. The man gasped in pain and dropped the weapon as Cole delivered an elbow to his face. There was a sickening crunch as the nose burst into a bloody smear. With both of the king's men on the ground, Krell's confidence near curdled. But Cole, for his part, was heartbroken. 
Krell, how could you allow them to- You had better run, Krell interrupted. Come back and you're a dead man. Krell had even taken on the accent of Silmoral. He was no longer the same person he once had been. He'd given away his whole self in the name of ambition. Cole didn't move. It was Krell who turned first. He stalked off in the direction of the public square, and Cole realized he might soon return with more of the king's men. As for the guards he had knocked down, one of them was crawling away, inch by inch, and moaning. The one with the broken nose was not moving at all. Just then, he felt a tug on the back of his pant leg. When he looked, he saw the man who had been beaten, the man he had saved. Cole helped him to his feet. The man coughed, and blood speckled his lips. Easy, Cole said gently. Thank you, friend, but you should not have. The man replied in a hoarse whisper. He swallowed before continuing. To aid the resistance is death. The resistance? Understanding dawned on Cole, and the blood drained from his face. His shoulders dropped as if a great weight had been placed upon him. What had he done? Come on, the stranger said with a nod of his head. You are one of us now. Chapter 4, Part 2, Day 1, Late Night, Party Status, The Party Status is Unchanged. Yellowfly had wanted to make Cold Camp a little ways off the road, between the outskirts of Rull, where the safe house was located, and Domor, but the gods had other plans. Only one hour into their journey west, clouds rolled in, depriving them of even faint moonlight by which to find their way. Worse, the temperature dropped and the distinct smell of rain filled the air. There was no doubt. A tremendous storm is coming, remarked Yellowfly to the others. We'll have to put up at the Harpy. Well, at least it'll be good to see Donick again. Yellowfly was referring to a ramshackle inn and tavern called the Happy Harpy they had passed on the way east. It was situated almost midway between the two towns and served as a popular rest stop for farmers and merchants. A surprising number of people went there to drink, despite the distant location, for the owner, Donick, was well-liked and encouraged local talent. Also, the ale was cheap. Yellowfly knew the owner from his misspent youth, and still numbered him among the few people he could mostly trust. arrived at the Happy Harpy just before midnight, just as the local band was finishing its last song. The last note of the tune rung out, and Yellowfly adjusted his seat at the bar. 
He smiled and addressed his old friend who stood on the opposite side, wearing an apron of homespun. Donick, you look well, friend. And how about old Jesmond? Is he still around? That old mercenary? Yeah, he's around here somewhere, I suppose. I tell you, Fly, that old sellsword's blade is so dull, it wouldn't cut bread. <laughs> Yellowfly laughed and accepted the cup of ale Danik put in front of him. It looked dark and smelled good. His wits are no sharper, I'm afraid, laughed the innkeeper. Always out of work, always in debt. If he asks you for money, run. Good advice, and I thank you for that as well. Now, tell me how you've been these past couple of years. While the two old friends caught up, Shawnee, Tamlin, Cole, and their reluctant companion, Phelan Orla, were waiting outside around back at a stout door of oak banded with iron. Presently it opened, and a middle-aged woman beckoned them inside. She led them through a storage room and up a narrow flight of stairs which went to the guest rooms on the second floor. Apologizing for the lack of available space, she handed two keys to Shawnee. For the time being, all four of them used the same room. Later, Tam and Cole would move next door, but they wouldn't leave until Yellowfly came back. While they waited, Shawnee sorted through the valuables she had taken from the safe house. The young rogue had had no particular qualms about looting it for valuables. To Shawnee, the rich and the dead were all fair game. Conversely, she never stole from the poor. They were not to be touched. This safe house owner was not exactly rich, but his gains were ill-gotten. He had been a corrupt member of the Watch before he retired, and now he worked for the Eye. Shawnee had taken a number of mundane valuables and some more interesting items, and thrown them all into a small sack. She hadn't really looked at them until now, as she spilled the contents of the sack onto the thin mattress. The coins jingled pleasantly, and she decided to count them before inspecting the other items. I'll roll a d100 for each kind of coin to see how much she found. In addition to this will be a velvet bag with 50 gold pieces and a note that simply says, Other half upon completion. Here are the rolls for the coins. For copper coins. 97. For silver. 71. And for gold coins. 82. Wow, all very good rolls. I'll record these on Shawnee's character sheet. I wonder if she found any gems. I'll say there's a 10% chance for something modest. The roll. A 42 means there were no gems. What about a chance for a magical item? Extremely unlikely. A 100 on the die will be a yes. I've rolled an 80, so uh, that's a no, but worth a shot. Shawnee separated the coins into piles and then stacked them on the bedside table. The final items from her loot bag were a rolled-up silk scarf of black and a slim book with a cracked wooden cover and water-stained pages. This last item she had found placed atop a shelf, well back and out of easy reach. She had needed to stand on a chair to discover and retrieve it. Flipping through, she found that the pages within contained mostly lists, but the entries were either in a foreign language or else in some kind of cipher. Shawnee had never been taught how to read the common tongue beyond a few simple words. Still, she could tell that these letters did not belong to that alphabet. She tucked the book away, intending to show it to Yellowfly when he came up. Yellowfly was about the smartest person she knew. He'd be able to figure it out, if anyone could. One floor below, 
an hour after the last customer had either retired to their room or else passed out at their table. Yellowfly and Donick were still deep in conversation. Normally, Donick would not have permitted any guests to remain in the tavern area after close, but tonight he tolerated it. The expected storm had indeed come and was hammering down outside. Donick did not have the heart to send his customers out into such weather, though he knew his wife would complain about it the next day. Yellowfly had just finished telling him about the double-cross ambush they had pulled off in the basement of the Fallfellow Inn. Should be on his way to Burke by now, concluded Yellowfly wistfully. Who is? asked Donick. That wink. Should be on the way to meet my colleague. No one you know. By now. They'd have held him for most of the day so he couldn't overtake us. You know. And inform the safe house owner. But by now he'll be on his way south. <laughs> Yellowfly sighed. You jealous of him then? Perhaps he wished that he too were leaving the life to become an average working man. Well, it was too late for that, and it did not do to entertain such thoughts. No, no, that's no life for me. You know, said Donick, those who live by the sword... Die by the sword, I know, I know, replied Yellowfly, completing the well-known proverb. Well, I will accept it. What's the alternative for a man like me? Grow old and poor? No, I'll take the sword. Both edges. Chapter 4 Part 3 Day 1 A few hours ago Gamaluna had risen through the ranks of the church over the years and had become wealthy through a combination of her shrewd business sense, expertise, and prudence. Prudence above all. From her start living in the gutters and picking pockets to her middle career committing burglaries in the wealthy districts of Sir Moral, she had enjoyed success after success. Now she found herself living among those same wealthy folk she had once stolen from. As an ex-burglar, she knew, better than anyone, how to protect herself from intruders, and she lived in a veritable fortress of a home in the affluent Rosedale district, not far from the royal palace. Gamma Luna rarely left the house these days, preferring to conduct business on her own turf. By now, at least by her reckoning, she was one of the highest-ranking members of the church, and she mostly had her experience and prudence to thank for it. Oh, and the ring. The ring had saved her on more than one occasion. She did not wear it all the time, for it was uncomfortable and bulky, so she kept it in a carved wooden box she had had custom-made by an associate with a very special set of talents. The box had a trap installed. Anyone who opened it the wrong way would release and inhale a puff of colorless, scentless, poisoned gas that would kill them within a few hours. Slow-acting poison had long been a favorite weapon of hers. Although she did not like the feel of it on her finger, she slipped the ring on every night, as she did presently, before taking her bedtime glass of brandy. She pushed it over the knuckle and admired it, as was her custom. Made of ivory, it featured the shape of a serpent's body that wriggled all the way around its circumference. The head of the snake was in profile and had a white pearl for an eye. The forked tongue of the snake protruded from the mouth and almost touched the tail that came around the other side. Although fairly exotic in style and material, this was a special piece of jewelry for another reason. It had been enchanted by its creator. The ring had the ability to detect poison in any liquid it touched. If poison was present, the pearl eye would turn pink. Gamaluna had stolen the item long, long ago. She couldn't remember from whom. 
Some of her more educated friends that she had shown it to over the years insisted it was a treasure from Silmoral's long-ago war with the lizard folk. If true, that would make the ring almost 400 years old and from the reign of King Ildris the Strange, who was said to be a wizard in his own right. Gamaluna looked contentedly out through the window over the roofs of her neighbors' houses and watched the sun set through the iron bars. If this home was the prison she had built for herself, she mused, Chartoon would approve. Transcendence in bondage. Speaking a quiet blessing to the deity, she dipped a finger into the brandy and wiped a liquid across the pearl eye of her ring. Satisfied when it did not change color, she took a sip. She lingered over the drink, as she always did enjoying the feeling of warmth that bloomed in her stomach and spread throughout her body. After a time, she set down her glass, replaced the ring in the box, went to bed, and died in her sleep. Almost directly below, two floors down, Gamaluna's valet, Kelman, also laid stiff and cold in his bed. Like his mistress, he had not known he was poisoned when he went to bed. Just a few inches below him, tucked under his mattress, was the actual ivory serpent ring of poison detection. He had delivered the replica earlier that morning during his daily duties and swapped it for the real one. He had not wanted to do it. He had been a loyal employee for years, but Kelman had been easy to coerce. The valet had only one child, a daughter over whom he doted. Once the weeping eye had abducted her, the man had agreed to do anything they asked. Thanks for listening to Tale of the Manticore. If you like what you've heard and want to support the show, there are lots of ways you can help out. You can recommend the show online or to friends, or you can rate or review the show on your podcatcher of choice. I now have two products on DriveThruRPG. One is my little ultralight game called One Shot in the Dark. The other is new. Over the course of the last season, the question I received most from listeners, by far, was if I had my rules hacks and lore available. I've finally compiled it all into an Encyclopedia Manticorica. Check it out if you're interested. As you know, I like to read out one of your kind reviews each episode. This one is from the Podbean app, and it was posted by Green Dice. Green Dice writes, My favorite podcast. You set the bar very high. I can't wait to see what you do next. And also, awesome start to season two. Green Dice, thanks so much for all the comments you've left on the Podbean app. It's extremely encouraging to get that kind of support, and I'm truly grateful. I'd also like to thank all the amazing talent that contributed to this episode, and there are heaps of it. Let's begin with the new cast member. Daniel Storm of the RPG radio show plays Donick, the innkeeper. Thanks very much, Daniel. Returning from season one, but in a new role, is Kyellen. Kyellen is a freelance musician, composer, and game designer. Royalty-free, CC, BY fantasy, and RPG music available for free download at soundcloud.com slash cc For more on his game design, check out TumbleDie Games at www.tumbledie.com and the Threat Dice podcast archive. This episode features not one, but two collaborations. I hope to do more of these in upcoming episodes because they are extremely rewarding. Simon J. Williams of the Legend of the Bones podcast not only voices the character Krell, brother to Cole, but he wrote the Dramatis Personae. Such a cool way to start off Cole's backstory. Thanks, Simon. The diegetic music you hear in the tavern is a collaboration between This Is Bardcore and myself. A while back, I sent him something minimal, and he came back with something so good, I just couldn't wait to have a scene in a tavern so I could use it in the show. 
Glad I finally got the chance. You can hear more from This Is Bardcore on YouTube. His channel is called Dweezil Van Saphir. Finally, I'd like to thank Scott Sexton for providing the tavern's name, the Happy Harpy Inn. For listeners who use social media, I'm easy to find at Manticore Tale on Twitter, or if you prefer Instagram, I'm at Tale of the Manticore Podcast. My email is taleofthemanticore at gmail.com. I also keep a blog at taleofthemanticore.blogspot.com, where I post show notes, art, character sheets, maps, and other stuff. The story will continue on the next episode of Tale of the Manticore. The story where chaos rolls. Greetings, Wanderer, and welcome back to Lonely TTRPG, the solo actual play and review podcast. I am your host, Steel Stass. Join me every week as I play through a new solo TTRPG for y'all. You can find Lonely TTRPG on your favorite podcasting site, such as Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you prefer to listen. If you're more of a visual learner, just look for The Black Dragon Dungeon Company on YouTube.com. Remember, just because you're playing alone doesn't mean you have to start alone. See you soon, Wanderer.